Well, it was a good day for me yesterday. Uh, I got to celebrate with family, and uh, Auburn, they pulled it out. You know, sometimes you just need a field goal kicker. Yeah, there we go. We're, we're excited about that. <laughs> so uh, we're starting a series uh, this month, and it's on hope. And, you know, every Christmas it's hard when you're a pastor. You're, you're trying to make Christmas new again. And, uh, you know, that feeling you get when you're a little kid and Christmas is so, it's just bright. It's something you look forward to all year long. You're, you can't wait that excitement, and I think, you know, as Christians, we have that excitement. Maybe, maybe that first Christmas after you, you first understand the gospel and believe, and you, you understand what God did for you, and you understand the debt that you owed, and you never could have paid it, and yet God sent His Son to die and to take it for you. And so, you know, Dr. Dylan and I were thinking through, you know, how can we change it up? Because we could, we could continue to, to read the same Christmas message over and over again with you, and we could just talk the same message, but we wanted to have an emphasis on hope this year. One thing that we see is that uh, as human beings, especially in the United States of America, what we do is we always look at the bad things. We're trying to get better and better and better, and we'll focus in on those bad things, and sometimes we become pessimistic. And, uh, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. You know, one day, the things that you're living for right now, your job, you know, all the, all the different responsibilities that you have, maybe taking out the trash, doing the dishes, those things, those things I get in trouble for, uh, for not do, you know, doing all my chores. Uh, one, one day those things just won't matter. The things of this earth will all fade away. Uh, when I did youth ministry, I used to tell my kids, you know, what's your favorite thing right now? And a lot of times it would be video games. That's, what if in 10 years I told you, you'll never see that video game again? It'll be sitting in a dump somewhere, buried under a bunch of dirt, and it'll be gone. You'll have a new video game, you know? Uh, sometimes we get so caught up in the things of this world. And so we've divided it up into five different sermons for December. There's five weeks in December, and so we're going to preach on hope. And, and so this week, we're going to be talking about the need for hope. Next week, it'll be the promise of hope. Third week, fulfillment of hope. Fourth, receiving hope. And lastly, the blessed hope. And I, I pray that this month, it'll be something special for you, something that reminds you what Christmas is all about. Maybe kind of bring it all back to life Again, so this morning we're going to focus on the need for hope. I think in the world we live in today, if you ask people whether they have a need, most people don't want to admit that they have a need. Uh, we're, we're pretty self-sufficient people. Uh, we don't want people helping us. I know for me, you know, I don't really like receiving gifts too often because then I feel like I have to give a gift back. Uh, we're, we're prideful. We don't like to feel as though we owe something to anybody else anywhere. And so when we're evangelizing, when we're sharing the gospel with people, you know, the first step is helping people understand their need, need, utter need, not just want, not just desire, their need for Jesus. Some come already broken, and that part's been taken care of. But here in the United States, we mostly encounter prideful, self-sufficient people who have all they need, or so they think. As we prepare for Christmas, it's important that we recognize this need for a Savior. Charles Hodge points out the overwhelming need of humanity and words it much better than I can, so I'm going to quote him this morning before we read our text. He says this, Our guilt is great because our sins are exceedingly numerous. It is not merely outward acts of unkindness and dishonesty with which we are chargeable. Our habitual and characteristic state of mind is evil in the sight of God. Our pride, vanity, and indifference to his will and to the welfare of others, our selfishness, 
our loving the creature more than the creator, our continuous violations of his holy law. We have never been or done what the law requires us to be and to do. We have never had the delight, that delight in the divine perfection, that sense of dependence and obligation, that fixed purpose to do the will and promote the glory of God, which constitute the love, which is our first and highest duty. We are always sinners. We are at all times and under all circumstances in opposition to God because we are never what his law requires us to be. If we have never made it our purpose to do his will, if we have never made his glory the end of our actions, then our lives have been an unbroken series of transgressions. Our sins are not to be numbered by the conscious violations of duty. They are as numerous as the moments of our existence. I thought he worded that so well, the depravity of man. Sometimes we count up our sins as though we know all of them, but there are sins of omission as well as, as sins of commission. And so often we find ourselves thinking higher of ourselves than we should, not recognizing the utter despair, the grossness of our sin when we come into the house, as we call it, of God, the place of worship that we have. I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. And we're going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, you know, this, this sermon requires a, a lot of different texts for me to show you our utter need for hope. But I thought 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 12 uh, gave us a good uh, grounds to work from as we, as we try to expound upon the scripture here. And so this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. It says this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and this morning we ask you to show us our need. Father, I pray you break us so that we see who we truly are. Father, show us the depths of our sin. Show us the darkness of our souls. 
And then, Father, I pray you'd show us you in your perfection, in your holiness, in your beauty. And, Father, I pray that the gospel would be so clear this morning that wretched, dark souls would call upon your name. Father, wash us, cleanse us through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So in your outline this morning, you'll see a little thing that says, We need hope because, number one, we need hope because the human condition is sinful. The human condition is sinful. Nothing new. If you've grown up in Sunday school, you understand what we're talking about, that that we are sinners. It's part of our nature. From the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned and you were born from them, next baby, next baby, you were already born into sin and your nature had been changed. You were no longer perfect. You were no longer just made in the image of God without sin, clean. You were born dirty. You were born with a disease passed down from your parents. It's almost like AIDS, you know. A parent with AIDS, when they have a baby, the baby has AIDS. Adam and Eve, they had sin. And when we were born, we had sin. You don't have to teach a baby how to sin. They know. You don't have to teach any of you how to sin. You know. It's a part of our condition. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is right before he sends the flood and kind of resets humanity with Noah and his family. This is what the Lord saw. Wickedness was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Have you ever thought about the intent of your heart? What if I told you that most of the good things that you do are actually evil? Would you believe me? What if most of those things are for you, for your glory, for your lordship, for you to be praised? What if most of the good things that you do are so that others will praise you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the intent of your heart behind your works? You see, when God looked down in Genesis 6, he saw people who were evil continually. Only evil continually. Do you think that we've changed so much? That from this point in time, human nature, because the flood happened, all of a sudden we just miraculously got good? All of a sudden we just, oh, we don't want to be only evil continually. Every intent of our heart, we're just going to change because we don't want the floods to come. No. No, we, that is still what it's like today. Everyone outside of Christ is spiritually dead and they can produce nothing good. Our righteousness is like poop, dung to God. Your very best. The best works that you could package up, you could go up to heaven, you could stand at the gates of heaven, you could look at God, you could say, Lord, look at all I've done. And he would look upon it in disgust as if you brought him a bag of dog poop. Dramatic, huh? I'm a little dramatic sometimes, but it's for real. It's what the scripture teaches us. Psalm 53, 2-3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Nobody. And that includes you 
Mr. Self-Righteous or Mrs. Self-Righteous who sits out there, I do good. No. The Word of God says no. God who looks at your heart and judges in perfect righteousness says no. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you think you can attain obtain the glory of God, that you think you can be on His level, that you can be in communion with Him for all eternity because of the works you've done, you are sorely, sorely mistaken. I might even use the word foolish because the Bible does. With a human condition in which none seek after God, all have sinned, and every intention of the heart is evil continually, we see a world with no hope. And indeed, outside of Christ, no hope is exactly what we find. It's why we preach Christ and Christ alone is Savior. Because He alone can take a dead slave and make him alive and free. In the letter to Paul from the church of the Thessalonians, it seems that they had sent a message to Paul full of self-doubtings. They had been afraid that their faith was not going to stand the test and that they weren't going to make the grade. Did you ever struggle with this? You put your faith in Jesus, but then you see the depravity of your heart. As time goes on, you find yourself falling into sin. You find yourself chasing after the things of this world. And what happens? You begin to doubt. And some people will go back to the cross and they'll remind themselves of the good news of the gospel and they'll believe, they'll repent, they'll turn from their sin. Other people will just continue to go down in despair. Was it real? Did they truly have faith? Do they really believe God could save someone that's as, as sinful as them? The heart is evil in and of itself. And so when they wrote this letter to Paul, they needed some encouragement. And what we see in, in the first few verses here of Second Thessalonians, and even at the end, is that Paul, he doesn't push them into despair by agreeing with them, but he highlights their virtues and achievements in such a way that these frightened Christians may hope again. And here's what I don't want you to think. I don't want you to think that Paul points to their goodness and says, look, you produce good things. You're saved. What he points to is the work of Christ in their lives that works against what the world is doing, that works against what sin is doing. Does that make sense? I want you to understand, he's not saying, you do good, you're saved. He's saying, Christ is doing good in you, you're saved. You see it? The big difference? That's what he's saying. All right? And so he tells them in verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. Your faith is growing abundantly. That's one of the marks of being in Christ. That's why our hope grows as we see our faith, our trust in God, where we're willing to step out and allow him full control of our lives to use us in whatever way he sees fit. It's our surrender. And when we truly trust him as Lord and Savior, when we truly believe that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, when we believe that he is everything we need, he sustains us, and that we have an eternal hope with him, we are willing to give up the things of this world and to walk in faith. You see, a Christian without a growing faith is no Christian at all. Because God is doing a work in His people. His Holy Spirit is sanctifying believers. And so one of the signs we see is that a Christian has a growing faith. Not that you've had the same faith for 50 years. 
but that the Holy Spirit is working in you, putting you through trial and test and tribulation over and over and over again so that you'll learn to step out in faith and trust Him even more and more and more and more. This life will be about Him and not about you. Secondly, he talks about their love for one another. He says, your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Second mark of the church, love for everyone is increasing. You see, what God does in our hearts and in our lives is he makes us more like Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, who loves like Jesus Christ? There's not one. There's not one. But as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, sanctifying us, He makes us more and more like Jesus. We learn to love. We learn to love. There's not a marriage that right from the bat you, you get married and all of a sudden everything's hunky-dory and you, you serve one another so perfectly and you, you lay down everything. No, it takes time. You learn to love. And God begins a work in you where He teaches you to love one another. Yes, even the stinky one on the pew next to you. Right? The one who makes little noises, right? Whatever. We love one another. That's the mark of the church, that we love one another. And he says, I see in you, church at Thessalonica, I see that your love for one another is growing. That's a movement of God. He's not talking about the kind of love that the world talks about. All right, They're not walking around giving holy kisses and, oh, we love you so much. No. The love that sacrifices, the love that exalts the other and lowers itself, the love that's willing to give itself up for one another, the love that Jesus demonstrates for us on the cross, that's what Paul's saying. You love one another. One of the marks of the early church, they sold what they had to take care of other people. If someone in the congregation had a need, they took care of it. That's why he encourages them. Then verse 4, he gives them some more encouragement. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Why? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let me tell you what a mark of a believer is. You will endure to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. That every trial, that every affliction, that every hardship, that every atheist who gives you their whole, this is how it's going to be. That every time you doubt God, you come back and you say, you know what, Lord? I trust you. I trust you. I'm going to endure to the end. Every affliction, every trial, no matter what comes at me, my hope is not in this world. My hope is in your son, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. And I trust in him. Not my comfort, not my stuff, not my circumstances. I trust in Christ alone. Amen? That's a mark of the church. Then he gives them in verse 11 as he goes down, and he's going to lay out a little bit about hell and what hell is like. But in verse 11, he gives them a little bit more encouragement about what Christ is going to do in the church. He's already doing those things. Paul says, I see these three things, but here's what he's going to do. He's going to make you worthy of his calling. Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, let me ask you, we just looked at all these Bible verses about what you have to offer and you have nothing. Every intent of your heart is evil. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do we have to offer him? 
How can, we, how can we be worthy of His Son Jesus dying on the cross for us? What do you have to give? Nothing. How can He make us worthy of the calling that we have? That's the sanctification process. He's making you more like Christ. We talk about the hands and feet of Christ Jesus. We seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We seek to impact people's lives for eternity, not just for a free handout, not just we want to help their physical needs. We want their soul to be forever saved. We want them to come alive for the first time. We want them to be forgiven and free. And the work that God does in our lives, He sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus so that we can fulfill the calling that we have to make us worthy. What makes us think we're worthy to stand before the Lord and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? It's that we trust that He will do it. He will do it, not us. We will submit and we will follow and we will have faith and we will trust but He's the one doing the work in and through us. Second thing He's going to do, verse 11, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. To give you a desire for good, a resolve for good. Now what's this good He's talking about? This isn't the good of the world. This isn't, oh, we do these nice things all the time. This is good as in Here's evil, here's good. A resolve to do the work that God has called you to. You have no passion for the lost, why? How can you say that you love God and that He is Lord of your life if you have no passion for the lost? His passion is for the lost. So much so that He sent His Son to die on the cross for you. And yet you have no resolve for good. There's a need for hope, isn't there? There's a desperation needed. Third thing, he talks about what's to be done in the church. Fulfillment of every work of faith by His power. He says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. Let the name of Jesus be glorified in you and you in Him. If someone looks at your life, is the name of Jesus glorified in you? Do they see Jesus glorified? they see him lifted high? Do they see him exalted? Or are your works for you, for your exaltation? For the things you want? What are you working for? What are you living for? What are all your strivings for? If tomorrow you died, would you have wasted your life? Or would you say, I'm glad I made the decisions I made. I'm glad I pursued the things that I pursued. You see, hope as you witness life and growth that Paul points out in the church at Thessalonica. You see hope there. We see hope that we're not left in this desperate estate that God has reached down and sent His Son Jesus to come and to save us. Not just to save us from hell, but to save us in this life from living a life that produces nothing. And to give us a hope in the future here and now as we walk with Him, as we serve His kingdom, as we live as the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what God is calling us to. Only those who are alive can grow in their faith, love, 
and endurance for the sake of the gospel. You see, he's talking to the church and only the church. If you are not a true member of the church, and we're not talking about Highland Park Baptist Church, we're talking about you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you have gone from being dead to alive, and the Holy Spirit now indwells in you. Only those people have hope. Because that's where life is produced. God is sanctifying His church. He's brought them to life. And He's doing a work in them that makes even the angels marvel. There's hope for sinners. And we need it. Second thing this morning. The penalty for sin is eternal death. Here's where people get hung up. The penalty for sin is eternal death. Many people have walked away from the faith because they just they can't get a handle on this. That God actually cares so much about your life and the works that you produce that the penalty for living in sin and walking would be eternal. That you actually have that much value. That God has actually invested that much in you. He's called you to such a high calling. He's given you such a great opportunity to be the light to the world that if you do not fulfill it, that if you reject his offer, that the punishment is eternal. People struggle with that. They don't think they're that important. You don't think you're that important. Why would God punish me eternally? I only live 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Why should my punishment be eternal? Let's talk about that. You see, death is the hardest thing we deal with on this earth. The finality of it is really hard. It's the wages of our sin. It's what we earned in our sin. It's the ultimate humbler of men. There's no hope beyond death for those outside of Christ. None. Zero. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. We don't believe in that. It's not scriptural. God, the perfect, righteous, and ultimate judge, has declared that our sin is worthy of eternal punishment. Not that God needs someone to defend his judgments, but let's think this through really quick. Why is it in America that adults are charged differently than minors? You ever thought about that? It's a different level of responsibility, isn't there? We say once you turn 18, you've lived a long enough life, you've had enough experiences that we're going to call you an adult. And at that point, the standard which you live to is a little bit higher than the standard you used to live at, right? Sometimes a 17-year-old will get 10 years for a crime that an 18-year-old would get life for. Why? Is that fair? According to that standard? Yes. There's a higher responsibility on an adult than there is on a child. Both committed the same crime. But sometimes that single year changes everything. Why is it that repeat offenders, repeat offenders, why is it that they get stricter consequences? It's the same crime. The first time they committed it, they got two years. How come the second time they don't get two years again? And then two years again? And then two years again? Why? There's a higher responsibility now. We've already reprimanded you. We've already disciplined you. We've told you this is wrong. You've paid the price, and yet you continue to do it over and over and over again. There's now a higher responsibility. So the second time you do it, maybe you go away for five years. Third time you do it, 
maybe 15 years. Maybe you do it a fourth time, and they say, that's it. Life. You're done. Why? Because you've been given every opportunity. Every opportunity. You've been disciplined. You've been corrected. You've been told what's right. And yet you continually do the same thing over and over and over again. Romans 1, 18 to 25 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You ever thought about that? Your unrighteousness suppresses the truth. As people see you live in sin, the truth is suppressed. They don't see the light. They don't see the truth of the gospel. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is talking in general sense to humankind. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God has revealed himself clearly to all creation. We have seen it. And he says this, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me remind you of a couple things about human beings, about you as a human. You were created in God's image, right? Talking about responsibility. We're talking about privileges that put you at a higher standard. You were created in God's image. Human beings were given dominion over God's entire creation. Is there a higher standard there? Yes. We were in perfect relationship with God. Created by Him, through Him, and for Him. We were given opportunity through the law to see our sin and repent. Even today, He's given us His law, His perfect good law. And we can see it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. How many of you parents... If you've corrected your kid 15 times, on the 16th time, you're just tempted to take them and just whip their tail. Right? Why? I've told you! Right? I've told you over and over and over again. Does God not call out? Does he not stand at the door knocking? Does he not give us his word? Has he not shown himself clearly through his creation? Has he not done everything? that a loving father would do to correct, to rebuke, to train in righteousness. So much so, he gave his only son 
to die for us. That's the last thing I want you to see. His son was crucified so that whoever believes will be saved. And yet, despite all of that, all the responsibility, all the privilege that he's given human beings, we rejected him and served the creature. Do those who rebel against a holy God who has paid the full price of our sin after creating us in his own image and giving us honor and authority over his creation deserve an eternal death and punishment? Do they deserve that? Or do they deserve eternal life? I think it's clear. To reject God, to reject his son, reject the calling and responsibility that he's given us to be good stewards, to reject every good gift, to reject his existence, to reject him as Lord, it deserves a final punishment and judgment. Every opportunity has been given. We see that uh, in verse 9, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I'll be cast away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might for eternity. There is not one who deserves to be in the presence of our perfect and holy God, but by grace through faith, believers will be reunited with him. Those outside of Christ will never experience God's presence or grace again forever. Forever. Matthew 10, 28 tells us this. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? God. Don't fear him who can destroy this body. Fear him who can destroy your body and soul in hell. Third thing I want you to see this morning is that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves or those around us. I think this statement right here is why a lot of people die and go to hell. They think they can do it. They think they got it all figured out. They they can save themselves. Who needs God? I'll be God. I'll take care of this. I'll be a good enough person. I'll do nice enough things. I will be the kind of person that never deserves eternal punishment in hell. And they die and go to hell because they don't understand this. What if I told you that I believe there's millions in hell right now that prayed the sinner's prayer, that walked an aisle, and they claimed to be Christians? I truly believe there's millions in hell right now that did exactly that. They prayed a prayer, and they walked an aisle, and they came down and they told the pastor that they did it, and they lived like hell the rest of their life. They thought they got their eternal security. I did it. I prayed the prayer. I meant it. I felt it. It was emotional. Oh, it had to be real. That moment does not determine whether it was true, whether it was real, whether you've been brought to life in Christ. It's just a moment. Same way, me vowing to to love Kim for the rest of our lives. That moment that I did it on the stage, it was just but a moment. What determines whether it was a real commitment is whether I live it out. For the rest of my life. Will I keep that commitment or not? The truth of salvation is that it is not in the control or power of man. 
It is entirely up to God. A prayer can't save you. The best works you could possibly muster are like poop in his eyes. And going to church will do nothing but make you comfortable on your way to hell outside of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's harsh, but it's true. Do we need hope? You better believe we need hope. I'm trying to paint as, 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 as dark of a picture as I can paint for you because it is the darkest picture, and I don't know that my words can even do it. I, I, I'm hoping that God, His Holy Spirit, will reveal to you what a desperate estate we are in outside of Jesus Christ. I can't even show you because I don't even understand the full extent of it. Only God does because He sees the heart and He's perfect. He understands what that perfect calling, what that perfect life looks like. I don't. A prayer can't save you. Romans 6, 6 to 14 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. I want to point out that word dominion. You saw that, but also you saw the word slave, enslaved to sin. That slave word in the Greek is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S in English. Obviously, it's different letters in Greek. And it means this, to be dominated by, to be dominated by. Sometimes we just don't understand how powerful sin is. We think that we have the power over sin. We think that we're stronger, that we can make a decision. It's up to us. We don't recognize that sin actually is so powerful that it has dominion over us, and we are slaves to sin outside of Jesus Christ, meaning that it is stronger than you. It enslaves us. It has dominion. We ask ourselves, how could someone do something like that? When we look out into the world, how could they cheat on their spouse? How could they abuse their children? How could they kill someone? How could they steal from their family for drugs? We ask these questions, but we know the answers. Sin is powerful. Sin can take over someone's life, and it does all the time. Whether it's through drugs, lust, anger, hatred, sin can destroy a life or many lives. People can't break free. They're controlled. And sin enslaves all who are alive in the flesh. They're dominated by sin because they're overpowered by sin. They think that they're the ones that make the decision to sin. They think that they could break free at any point in time. And any of you Christians in here this morning, if you've ever gotten stuck in a sin... 
you've let it become a part of your life, you know just how hard it is to break free from that sin. And we're in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And yet it's still hard to break away from sin. Think about those outside of Christ. No hope. Completely overpowered. Completely enslaved. Sin's more powerful than the human will. Without supernatural intervention, humankind is bound to serve as slaves for its entire existence. You outside of Christ are bound to serve sin as a slave for your entire existence. Humankind is dead in its sins and trespasses, doomed without hope. Last point this morning. There is only one who can save us. There's only one who can save us. You're thinking, Josh, you're supposed to be talking about hope, man. This is pretty heavy. Uh, (laughs) It's pretty dark. There is no hope without understanding your desperate estate. There is no hope without understanding that there's no one else who can save you outside of Jesus Christ. That's where the hope comes from. To recognize that he is the only one. Our hope is in one man alone. We believe in his resurrection and the promise that he will return again to resurrect his church. This is what makes Christmas so marvelous. Jesus was born. He came down from heaven. The, one, the only one, the only one who could save us. The only one who could take our sins. The only one who could give us hope. And he came down and he took the form of man and he was born in Bethlehem in a manger. He came for you. He came for me. He came to give us hope, though we deserve no hope. There's nothing scarier as a man than waiting for your bride to come down the aisle when you're standing in front of all your family and friends. Uh, Kim had a little delay with her dress when she was coming through the door, and so they started playing the bride music. And I'm standing there on the stage, and they're playing the music, and the door opens, and no one's coming through for a while. And you're kind of like, eh? You know, I saw the movie Runaway Bride. I'm thinking, did she wear her tennis shoes today? Like, what's going on here? And then she came out. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, there's a relief. That's how the church is today. We look forward to the resurrection. You see, without the resurrection, we're most to be pitied. Paul tells us, if, if there is no resurrection, if Christ did not raise from the dead, we can't be raised from the dead. And death is final. It's the end. If Christ wasn't raised, we can't be raised. He sure can't raise us if he can't raise himself. And so we look to the resurrection with that anticipation, knowing that he's coming. He's promised he'd come. Kim promised she'd come down the aisle. I might have doubted a little bit. I'm not going to lie, right? But please come, right? As Christians, that's what we await, this coming hope of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, Paul lays it out for us. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, we are the most to be pitied. We are awaiting on a bride who will never come, a groom who will never come as his church. But we don't believe that. We believe that this love story is true. We believe that we do have a hope, a coming hope. And when we look to Christmas, what do we see? We see God with us, Emmanuel, on the earth, in a manger, come to save those who will believe and put their faith in him for all eternity. And so we have hope, and so we rejoice. Why do we have hope? Because Jesus came. He lived a righteous and blameless life. He laid down his life, surrendering for our sins, and he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death on our behalf. We need hope because outside of Christ is only death. And death is final. In conclusion this morning, every human being in this room, in this city, in this state and world was born with a disease. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Sin has not just affected your actions, but has affected your very heart the driver of your thoughts, emotions, and actions. And as a result of sin, we will all die. We have a need, a need for hope. God saw our need. He knew our desperate state, and he decided to extend hope for us, even when the cost was his only son. Have you recognized and accepted your need for hope? Does Christmas bring the joy that it should? A Messiah is born. He is Christ the Lord. And because of this birth, you have hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you desired to save sinners like us. There's not a man or a woman in this room worthy of the calling that you've put on our lives. Lord, we have nothing to offer, nothing to give. Lord, I pray that each one of us this morning would receive the gift that you have given to us freely, no strings attached, that we truly believe, put our faith in you. God, would you save this morning? Would you heal this morning? Father, would you break people free from sin this morning? And Lord, may you receive all the glory and all the honor, and all the praise, as we hope in you, and in your Son, Jesus. Amen.